West Houston Bible Church. It's uh, good to see everybody this rainy morning. What will be interesting is to see who arrives at about an hour. That's always fun. Those are the ones who forgot. Okay. Um, announcements. Tomorrow night at 7 o'clock, Act for America. This is Brigitte Gabriel's organization that uh, focuses on a lot of issues related to uh, radical Islam. Uh, Chris Bird is going to be speaking tomorrow night dealing with, with leg- the importance of legislation related to prohibiting uh, legislators from using or in the judicial system from using Sharia law. Uh, to reach their their decisions and to keep everything in the ju- in, in the judicial arena in the United States and in individual states related to American law, and this is uh, this is important. I think there's going to be a large turnout. I know there are a number of people in the Jewish community who are interested, and they're going to be coming. So, um, Act for America has been re- been meeting here one uh, since September. They run out of a space to meet, so we had authorized them to meet here once a month. Uh, so that'll be tomorrow night. Uh, also coming up there next weekend, there's the teen retreat at Sandy Creek Bible Camp, and you can contact Rick or Amy King about that. And then uh, the men's camp out, annual men's camp out, will be September 17th through 18th. Now, I mean, I'm, where's my mind? You know what I mean. You, uh, September means April. You all know that. <laughs> Also, in, uh, on April 13th, there's going to be a community-wide invitation uh, event sponsored by APAC and a number of uh, synagogues, and they're hosting a speaker, Rabbi Daniel Gordis. And he's an excellent speaker, and he'll probably be talking. I mean, I've heard him speak several times at events like this, talking about the contemporary situation in Israel. And he, is, uh, he, made, he and his family made Aliyah. Uh, seven or eight years ago, and I encourage you that if you'd be in, if you're interested in Israel and contemporary events, current events, situations like that, then this is a great event to go to. There's no charge for the event. There's a dessert reception afterward, and we sent out the announcement. We'll send it out again, but you need to RSVP so they know how many how many folks to expect, and that will be at seven o'clock on April April the thirteenth. Okay, I think that takes care of. The announcements. Scripture teaches the importance of our worship together, corporate worship, that the body of Christ comes together to encourage one another. And that's not always verbal. That's just by our presence to see others, to be with others who are also focused upon the Word of God and who are focused on spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. That encourages us. Coming together in corporate worship as we sing worship through giving, and as we will this morning, worship at the Lord's table, as well as the highest form of worship, which is the study and application of the Word of God. But Scripture teaches that for us to be uh, walking in our spiritual life, we have to be walking by God the Holy Spirit. When we sin, we're no longer walking by the Spirit. We're walking according to the flesh or the sin nature. The way to recover is through 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, which simply means to admit or acknowledge our sins to God the Father, then he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we'll begin with a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, as we come together this morning, we are particularly grateful to you for all of your grace blessings in our lives, knowing that we have been uh, blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. We have been identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. We have been uh, given victory over our sin nature, freed from the tyranny of the sin nature, though it is still present. And we are given instruction from your word that by the Holy Spirit we are able to learn and apply in our lives. Father, we are thankful that we live in a nation that still has freedom of assembly, and even though there are more and more voices raised against biblical Christianity, and even though there are more and more rumors and threats of interference from government on uh, in many different levels, 
uh, from the freedom of religion. Father, we pray that you would continue to protect and preserve us so that you would continue to provide leaders who serve in local, state, and national legislatures that will stand in the gap to prevent the loss of our freedoms. Father, we pray for the missionaries we support, especially Jim and Phyllis Myers and and Igor and Yulia in uh, Ukraine. We also pray for George uh, George Meisinger, thankful that he is uh, slowly improving and uh, doing well. And, Father, we continue to pray for Chafer Seminary and uh, everything that's involved with finishing up the move and uh, to a new location as well as the students that are involved in classes right now. Father, thank you for the wonderful opportunities that uh, come our way and that we avail ourselves of uh, it to minister in this congregation. And we pray that all that we say and do this morning will honor and glorify you, and we pray this in Christ's name. Every month on the second Sunday of the month, we celebrate the Lord's Table. The Lord's Table is provided for us as believers in the church age for the purpose of taking time to remember all that God has provided for us and done for us in our salvation. The focus of the Lord's table is on the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's very simple. There's two elements. There's the bread that is unleavened, and then there's the cup of grape juice or wine. Historically, it was wine until about a 150 years ago, and then a lot of churches, due to the uh, rise of the temperance movement, shifted over to grape juice. And uh, But the purpose of both of these elements is to focus our attention upon this wonderful work of salvation that God has provided for us. It is an outgrowth of the Passover meal, the Seder meal, that was instituted in the Old Testament as the Jews were freed from slavery in Egypt. And that's a great picture uh, for us of our own deliverance and freedom from slavery to sin. And what we see is what's called theologically type and antitype. Now, those are words that for a lot of people have lost their significance today because we don't use them in everyday language. But basically what it means is it refers to a, an image or the foreshadowing of a person or an event in the Old Testament that's designed to teach and give instruction about certain uh, either people or events in the New Testament. Of course, the most obvious is the Lamb. The Lamb of God, the Lamb from the Old Testament, was to be without spot or blemish. The Lamb was to be, at the Passover meal, was to be evaluated for three days prior to its sacrifice to make sure that it was without spot or blemish. And that is a depiction of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he was to be impeccable without sin as the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. And so the centerpiece of the Passover meal was the Lamb that was without spot or blemish that depicted that perfect sacrifice that would be provided in the future by Jesus Christ. The Passover meal also involved uh, bread that was unleavened in the original historical situation, that unleavened bread uh, was unleavened because they were in a hurry. They didn't have time to leaven it, to let the dough rise, and then to bake it. They were in a hurry because God was going to deliver them that night from slavery in Egypt. But there was another purpose for that, and that is that leaven in the Scripture is a picture or a type of sin. It represents sin. And so the lack of leaven in the bread was to symbolize the lack of sin in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the same way that the lamb was without spot or blemish, the bread, which represents the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ, was unleavened. It was without sin because the Savior who would die on the cross for our sins needed to be qualified. He needed to be perfectly righteous without and without sin. Only someone without sin, only a human being without sin, could die as our substitute and in our place. So the bread represents the humanity, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, thoroughly qualified uh, as a human being to go to the cross and to die as our substitute. The cup represents his sacrifice. It is that deep red color of the grape juice of the wine that is reminiscent of the color of blood. 
and the shedding of blood, even that term, the shedding of blood, is itself a figure of speech, a metaphor in the Old Testament, uh, to speak of physical death. We go back to its first use in uh, Genesis chapter 9 in the Noahic Covenant, which says that whoever sheds man's blood shall by man also have his blood shed, the foundation for capital punishment as foundation for punishing criminality is given in the Noahic Covenant. And so this idea of shedding blood doesn't just refer to a death where blood is physically shed, because sometimes murder can be committed by poison or by strangulation or some other means where there is no uh, blood flow. They're not bleeding out in the course of their death. And so the, the cup represents a physical death, but the physical death of our Lord Jesus Christ was not that which was significant for the payment of sin. That was his spiritual death. Spiritual death is a separation from God. And when God placed Adam and Eve in the garden and he told them they could eat from any tree, any plant in the garden, but they could not eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in the day, that is, at the very instant that they ate, they disobeyed God, they would die. Well, they didn't die physically for over 900 years, but they died spiritually. And we see the effects of that described in the third chapter of Genesis, when God came to walk in the garden with them, they were afraid and they ran and hid. It's a picture that now they are separated from God. That's what spiritual death is. Every human being is born, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, dead in our trespasses and sins. We're separated from God. So there has to be something that takes place to reconcile man to a righteous God, and that is accomplished only by the payment of that sin penalty, the payment of spiritual death. So it has to be the same kind of death. This is what takes place on the cross between 12 noon and 3 p.m. as God the Father brought this intense darkness upon Golgotha, upon Jerusalem. There would be this, this fearsome, darkness that would come so that man, those who are witnesses of the cross, could would not see the horrible suffering that the Lord Jesus Christ endured as God the Father imputed or credited to Jesus Christ our sin so that he bore in his own body on the tree our sin. He who knew no sin was made sin for us that the righteousness of God might be found in us. So the point of the spiritual death was to pay the penalty. So it's after that has accomplished when Jesus again speaks following those three hours when he bore the sin penalty, and then he said, it is finished. And in the Greek, it's in a perfect tense, which indicates completed action. It's what someone would write after a debt has been paid off, when you pay off your mortgage and they write on there, paid in full. That's what tetelestai means. It means paid in full, complete payment. So Jesus said it has already been completely paid for before he died physically. So that emphasizes for us the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we come together to focus on the Lord's table, it's time for us to reflect and to remember that, that no matter what what our life is like, no matter what our background is, no matter what uh, what benefits, what talents, what finances, what jobs, what education we have, we're all sinners. Scripture says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and that we all have to go to the cross in order to be saved. We bring nothing with us. We just trust in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation. And so the Lord's table is that opportunity for us to be quiet, to reflect, to remember, to focus upon who Jesus Christ is and what he has done for us. And I'm going to ask Doug Karn if he would please come up and give thanks for the bread. Father, we thank you for this bread of which we're about to partake. And we thank you even more for who and what it stands for, the humanity of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who was born into this world as true humanity and true deity in one. And he was uniquely qualified 
to bear our sins in his own body on the cross. Now, Father, as we take the bread, we pray that you will bless the bread to the glory and honor of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. It is our custom to retain the bread until all have been served. The meal that Jesus celebrated with his disciples came to the point where he would take the unleavened bread, the matzah, and he broke it and he passed it out to his disciples. And he said, this is my body, which is given as a substitute for you. Take and eat. Franklin, if you would please come up and return thanks for the cup. Father, as we continue in our remembrance of what was done for us on the cross, we take this cup aware of the suffering, the intense suffering that was taken on our behalf, that was so intense that the Lord asked that if it could be taken away, it be so. But it was your plan, and he accepted it willingly and graciously on our behalf, which allows us the hope and the joy of looking forward to eternity with you through all that you have provided. And as we look at this cup and we reflect on the blood, we know that it marked a sacrifice for us all one time that marked our debt paid. And as we take this, we pray that you would help us to continue to reflect on this and your plan. And we ask all these things that the cup be taken in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So our custom to retain the cup until all have been served. Our Lord then came to the third cup that would be taken during the course of the Seder meal. This cup was called the cup of redemption. And he said, this is the new covenant of my blood which is shed for you. As often as you drink this, do so in remembrance of me. Following their observance of the Passover that day, they sang hymns. They would sing from the Hallel Psalms. We sing a hymn specifically written to be sung at the Lord's table, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, it's hymn number 185. We sing the third verse softly, then crescendo on the fourth. Please stand. In the worship of giving, we recognize that we do not give in order to get anything from God because God has already given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. He has already blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. We give as a response to our understanding of God's grace in our lives. We give as we come to understand the role and responsibilities of each believer to support the teaching of the Word of God, both at home and abroad through missionaries, and we give as an expression of our desire to glorify God. Scripture says, As every man purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a generous, grace-oriented giver. As the men come forward to take up the offering, let's bow our heads together in prayer. Father, we're so grateful for all the ways in which you have blessed us, our riches in Christ, all the things that you have supplied for us. And Father, as we give, we recognize that we do this out of gratitude in our souls for your grace and our desire to support this local church as well as the teaching of your word uh, throughout the world. And Father, we ask that you bless these gifts in Christ's name. Amen. It's at this time we dismiss the kids to go back to their prep school classes.
All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, but the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. To Martha, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Before we begin our study this morning, let's bow our heads and ask the Lord's guidance on our time in his word. Our Father, we're so grateful that we have your word. It illuminates the thinking of our mind. It brings light to the dark areas of our soul that have not been illuminated by the truth of your word, and it challenges us to walk by the Spirit and to walk in the light as you are in the light. Father, as we study today, continuing our study in the life of Christ in Matthew, we pray that you might help us to understand the dynamics of what are going on, why Jesus says the things that he says, and the impact that should have on our thinking and our understanding of who Jesus Christ is and what he offered to Israel and what he will eventually provide for us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, and we are focusing upon uh, this next section, which goes from Matthew chapter 11, uh, verse uh, 16, actually, verse uh, 16, down through verse 24, 16 through 24. I didn't get the right scripture on the slide, but it is reaction, rejection, and condemnation. We see the response in this chapter to the gospel, to Jesus' gospel ministry. The message that Jesus gave is found in Matthew 4.17. Up to this point, the focal point of this message has been on the kingdom. This is the same message that John the Baptist came announcing. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John the Baptist began this message and the people flocked to hear him. Down by the Jordan River, he would baptize them as a sign that they were being identified with repentance, an expectation of a kingdom. Now, we need to take a look at this particular phrase a little bit to understand it because this is at the heart of, of what is happening in Matthew 11 and 12 as we see Jesus formally rejected by the religious leaders of his day. The message has been to repent. Repent is based on a Greek word, metanoeo, that if we were to just break it down etymologically, noeo has to do with the mind or thinking. The noun is nous, and meta means after. So it might mean a, etymologically a second thought or an afterthought. That's not the meaning. It means, the way it's used, is to change your mind about something. And in the Jewish thinking, if you changed your mind, you were turning from one thing to another. So that a synonym that is used in the Gospels for repentance is also epistrepho, which means to turn. And you're turning from that which is disobedient to God to that which is in obedience to God. It has its root in the Old Testament word shuv, which is usually translated turn, and is a depiction of Israel turning away from idols, away from false teaching, away from idolatry to the worship of the one true God, the triune God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so eschatologically, and that means in terms of the end times, this, this concept of turning is embedded within Deuteronomy chapter 30, that before the kingdom would come, before God would fulfill his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to establish a kingdom 
to give them the land that he had promised them before God would fulfill the the land covenant that's uh, that's expressed in Deuteronomy 29, before God would express uh, or, or would provide for the ultimate son of David, the Davidic king, the Mashiach, the Messiah of Israel, before that would take place, Israel would have to turn back to God. That's what's expressed at the beginning of, of, of Deuteronomy 39, I mean 30. And so what we see here is this is the message. There's the expectation of a Messiah, that the Messiah will come. John the Baptist, as we saw in our study of him the last time, uh, John the Baptist has come uh, in the spirit and ministry of Elijah as the fulfillment of the Old Testament uh, prophecy in Malachi 3.1 that God would send a messenger before the Messiah to announce so that John the Baptist is the forerunner announcing the coming of the king. So the king is a literal king, the literal descendant of David who will establish his kingdom in a literal throne in a literal Jerusalem on the earth. The reason I emphasize that is because... Uh, Starting in about the third century after Christ, a new way of interpreting the Bible entered into Christianity, heavily influenced by uh, Platonism and Neoplatonism, the dominant philosophies of the Greek world at that time, which introduced what is called allegorical interpretation to the Bible. Allegorical interpretation says basically that these uh, things that are described physically and literally in the Bible uh, do not necessarily take place, that there's a hidden meaning, a second meaning, a spiritual or allegorical meaning, and that these events did not actually necessarily take place in a literal physical fashion. As a result of that, the concept of the kingdom was distorted. The concept of the kingdom no longer became a literal, physical, geopolitical kingdom centered in Jerusalem with Jesus reigning on the literal throne of David, but it became spiritualized to heaven. So that in the Old Testament, if you read in uh, Genesis chapter 12, verse 7, when God said to Abraham, I am going to give this land to you, walk its breadth and width and length, that that really didn't mean land. By the time you get into the New Testament, it's redefined. That's really heaven. It's not land. So the terms like land and Israel are no longer taken at their literal value. They're, they have a hidden spiritual meaning, and it's that spiritual meaning that is really of significance. One of the uh, great thinkers of the church at that time, influenced by the school of Alexandria in northern Egypt, was a man by the name of Origen, and Origen is the one who really systematizes allegorical interpretation. And that becomes the dominant way in which Christians interpreted the Old Testament for the next 1,300 years. Can you imagine? For 1,300 years. And it becomes formally the orthodox view of the Roman Catholic Church under the teaching influence of the Bishop of Hippo in uh, North Africa, a man by the name uh, by the name of Augustine or Augustine, and he introduces it, it formalized. So if anybody deviates, they're they're a heretic. So for 1,300 years, everybody's thinking that the church has replaced Israel because God really wasn't giving Abraham a piece of real estate on the Jordan River. He's just promising that he's going to give him heaven. And this changed this view. Well, th this idea of a non-literal kingdom is known as amillennialism. Amillennialism, theologically, means it, there's not. That A at the beginning is based on the Greek uh, alpha privative, what they call the first letter. It's like our prefix UN, which means no literal kingdom, no literal millennium. And this dominated the church until the Protestant Reformation, and it wasn't for about a 100 years or so after the Protestant Reformation began in 1517. It's not till the end of that century that as more and more Bible scholars and theologians are reading and interpreting the Bible in a literal manner that they come to understand that there will be a future literal kingdom upon the earth and that Jesus is going to return a second time in order to establish that kingdom. And he will return before he is, the kingdom begins 
and that it has been postponed because Israel rejected him. The primary character of that kingdom is Jewish. It's a Jewish kingdom for Jewish people that's located in the historic homeland of the Jewish people in Israel, ruled by a physical descendant of David, Jesus of Nazareth, who through his uh, mother Mary is in the direct line of descent from King David. So when John the Baptist came, what the people understood was this kingdom that had been prophesied and foretold for the previous 1,500 years. And they understood exactly what John meant when he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, that finally God is going to fulfill his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, to Moses, and to David, and to Jeremiah, and now the kingdom is going to come because the king is coming. Now, there's another view that came along after the Protestant Reformation called postmillennialism. Don't worry, I'm going to tie all this together before we get done. Called postmillennialism. Postmillennialism means the church is going to reform society through God the Holy Spirit. That's the conservative view. That, that through the ministry of God the Holy Spirit, the, the church is going to spread out its influence around the world, and eventually everybody comes to a knowledge, uh, a saving knowledge of the gospel, and that as a result of their, the salvation of the world, that the kingdom will come in, this utopic vision of perfection, this kingdom will come in, and Jesus returns at the end of that kingdom. That's called post-millennialism. Now you've got those three vocabulary words so you can understand this. Premillennialism, Jesus returns before the kingdom to establish the kingdom. Amillennialism, we're not, we don't have a literal kingdom. The church is the kingdom and you're living in the kingdom right now. It's a spiritual kingdom. Jesus is ruling from the spiritual throne of, of David in heaven. See, it's the throne of David's been spiritualized. It's no longer earthly. It's now in heaven. And then there's postmillennialism. Now, the, the postmillennialism and amillennialism were very, very conservative for for many, many, many centuries until you get into the mid 19th century. Mid 19th century, there is a wind of evil that blows across Western civilization that originated from the Enlightenment period of the 17th and 18th centuries. And this wind uh, becomes known as Protestant liberalism. And at its foundation is the rejection of God, that God does not actually exist. If he did, we couldn't actually know him, and he can't communicate to us. That Christianity and the Bible are really no different from any other book. They, they may have uh, sections of great insight, but so do many other books written by human beings. So they rejected the historic orthodox view of the Bible that it was the inerrant, infallible word of God breathed out by him through human being and that through his oversight it was kept free from error and from anything anything wrong. It is a, a perfect book that we can rely upon. They also rejected the deity of Christ, the whole idea of the virgin birth the whole idea of miracles, because they're coming from a purely rationalist, rationalistic framework. They believe that everything must be submitted to human reason. Since we never saw this happen at any other time in history, then it can't possibly be true. And so they rejected the idea science can't prove a virgin birth, so it couldn't happen. Science can't prove miracles, so they couldn't happen. And this becomes the dominant view of the left wing Liberal Christianity, it rejects supernaturalism. That's its foundation. It, it rejects supernaturalism. Now, the Bible teaches something that most people don't like, and that is that it's not that in the words of Wayne Dwyer, who was a pop psychologist in the 70s, you're okay, I'm okay, you're okay. The Bible says, I'm not okay, neither are you. None of us are any good. Bible teaches something called total depravity. Total depravity means every aspect of our nature has been corrupted by sin. We're all sinners, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. This is the claim of the Bible, that people aren't basically good. People are basically evil. People are corrupted by their sin nature. It doesn't matter how nice and 
wonderful they might be, they're still a corrupt, spiritually dead person. It doesn't matter how sweet and nice and cute that little baby is. You can love that little baby all you want to, but that little baby is the flesh wrapped around the sin nature. And that is under, that is under condemnation. And Jesus Christ came to die for all of us. That's how we all are when we come into this world. And we're corrupt and we're fallen. But see, in liberalism, because they reject creationism, they reject Genesis, they reject the Bible, everybody's basically good. And, and they may have flaws and they may have failures and they may make mistakes, but everybody is basically good. Now, the understanding of total depravity is foundation for understanding the U.S. Constitution. And the Declaration of Independence, the reason you want to have checks and balances on government is because absolute power corrupts absolutely. And because when sinners are in power, they may be wonderful people, but don't tempt them with, with, with real power. So there have to be these checks and balances. So we, we, the, the Constitution was founded on biblical concepts and a biblical view of man as, as totally depraved. But by the mid-19th century... There, the, the, these evil winds of change have come in, and basically people are thinking that everybody is basically good. So if you're basically good, then people can be, can be perfected. Because if they're basically evil, you can't perfect them because they still got this rotten core. But if they're basically good, they can be perfected, and if individuals can be perfected, then societies can be perfected. And so in the middle of the 19th century... You have, with the rejection of a biblical view of man and a biblical view of society is being corrupt because of sin, you have a new view of society, a new view of man, and consequently it develops new views of politics. And all of this is influenced at the same time by the rise of Darwinism, which teaches that man is just a, an accidental byproduct of time and chance. And you have the rise of modern sociology and modern psychology, as well as Marxism. And all of these are designed ultimately that because man is basically good, he can be improved, and we can bring in a utopic kingdom. Now, this is what happens historically, is the concept of the kingdom, which went from this literal kingdom announced in the Gospels to a spiritualized form of the kingdom uh, in Roman Catholic theology that still hung around because certain Protestant denominations never really worked out the literal interpretation of prophecy as they should have. So you have Lutherans and many Presbyterians, most Presbyterians, there's a few pre-mill Presbyterians, most of them are amill or post-mill, and some other denominations that don't believe in a literal kingdom and that only when a perfect king comes to establish his kingdom can we have a perfect society and that's off in the future so what laid the foundation or groundwork for for the shift in the 19th century on the understanding of kingdom was this allegorical king, uh, concept of the kingdom that still hung around. By the time you get into the 19th century, there, there's a split that occurs. Conservatives would still believe in a in total depravity. Fundamentalist evangelical still believed in total depravity and still believe, even though they believed in a non-literal kingdom, they, they didn't go where the liberals went. The liberals had come along, liberal the- theologians had come along, and they had undercut the foundation by tearing away the Bible. So now if man's no longer totally depraved, he no, no longer needs redemption, and sin isn't the problem, then man, on man's own efforts, can bring in a perfect kingdom. And so the concept of the kingdom became misunderstood, and people like from Karl Marx to Hegel to uh, a number of other people in Christianity had Walter Rauschenbusch and uh, Washington Gladden and Charles Sheldon and others who promoted what became known as the social gospel. There are two gospels. There's a redemptive gospel for the individual, and then there is the social gospel to 
reform society and make it perfect. And that's and, and so the emphasis for Christians needs to be on reforming society. You got to deal with the problem of the poor, the problem of labor, the problem of the unequal distribution of money. The, all of these things become part of the social gospel. And what happens is once you start making that shift to where you have two gospels, the wrong gospel always eats up and destroys the good gospel. And so by the end of the 19th century, the dominant view was this uh, pseudo-optimistic post-millennialism of liberalism that got slaughtered and massacred on the fields of Flanders in modern warfare in World War I. And we thought post-millennialism was dead, but it, it came back in the late 20th century. But the social gospel was also killed on the fields of Flanders. But it's coming back now in a new form. The reason I went through that is because I'm pointing out to you that a misperception and misunderstanding of this kingdom concept leads to a total, totally different understanding of Jesus and what Jesus was doing and what Jesus was offering. And the concept, the modern concept of taking this idea of the kingdom of Christ as a present time political kingdom isn't something new. This was the same mistake that the Jews made at the time that Jesus came. The Old Testament taught clearly that the Messiah would come and he would rule, but it also taught that the Messiah would come and would suffer and die for sins. That's in Isaiah chapter 53. And what happened in Jewish theology was they got these things reversed. They forgot about the cross, and they focused on the crown. And when Jesus came offering the kingdom, it wasn't the kingdom that they thought would be coming. And so they rejected him as the Messiah. And this pattern repeats itself down through history. It repeat, that's what was repeated in the 19th century, is that the kingdom of the Bible as a premillennial future time is rejected because they've rejected total depravity, they've rejected the need for redemption, they've rejected the need for justification, and now man can do it all on his own by self-reformation and pulling himself up by his own bootstraps, and he can reform the world. And this becomes a vital dynamic feature in progressive politics, in progressive political theory, which is what is dominating uh, much of our political arena today, is you have conservatives and you have liberals, but most of them are progressives. Some are more conservative, some are less conservative, but progressivism, which dominates politics today, there are very few that are not, excuse, it, 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 it rejects, the biblical view of man and the biblical view of government, thinking that the role of government is to perfect society rather than to restrain sin and evil both within as well as outside of national government. So the problem that we have today is confusion over the kingdom. And this is very much a, an issue that, that has influenced uh, everything. So this is the backdrop. So let's just look for a minute at what happens here in this particular section, starting in uh, verse 16. Jesus says, But to what shall I liken this generation? See, the first part of this chapter, down through verse uh, verse 15, has focused on the response of John the Baptist to Jesus. He, he thought Jesus was the Messiah, believed Jesus was the Messiah, but Jesus wasn't bringing in a political kingdom as he had expected. Uh, he didn't have all the information. I pointed out this was a problem with his, not a problem that he doubted, but a problem with enlightenment. He needed more information. And, and Jesus' answer was simply to point out what, uh, uh, what Jesus was doing, that the uh, lame walk and the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them. Incidentally, in the Bible, when it talks about helping the poor, it's primarily talking about helping the righteous poor not the indigent, irresponsible, lazy poor. They need to reap the consequences, read Proverbs on the poor. You'll come to understand that. The poor that are supposed to be supported by the church in the New Testament are those that are the righteous poor, those that, are, that want to work or can't work or 
uh, for some other reason are helped and strengthened by those who can. They are not the the irresponsible and lazy poor. Uh, that distinction is completely lost under the concept of the social gospel. So in the first part of this chapter down through 15, we have the response of John the Baptist. We have the response of the religious leaders who try to subvert the concept of the kingdom to their own purposes. That's what was talked about in verse 12 from the, when Jesus said, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence. This is a pattern throughout history that I've been pointing out is that leaders want to take this concept of the kingdom of God and, and twist it and manipulate it to their own purposes rather than understanding what it is in the purpose and plan of God. And so now Jesus says, as he begins to articulate the condemnation of that generation, which reaches its, its uh, climax in chapter 12, he says, he says, but to what shall I liken this generation? He says, what shall I compare uh, this generation to? He is going to describe them uh, with this, this uh very common illustration. He says, what shall I compare them to? What shall I liken this generation to? It is like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their companions and saying, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We mourned to you and you did not lament. Now, this is an interesting little passage to deal with. We have to understand um, a little bit about what is going on here and what is taking place. The first thing we need to look at is he uses this phrase, this generation. This generation occurs several times in Matthew, either the phrase this generation or sometimes he adds uh, an, a couple of adjectives, like in Matthew 12:39, he says an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. Matthew 12:41, he talks again about Judgment, he says, the men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. So he's talking about the failures of this particular generation of Jews and their rejection of the Messiah. Matthew 12:42, the queen of the south, that would be the queen of Sheba, will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and indeed a greater than Solomon is here. We have this phrase used in the end of Matthew 12:45. this wicked generation. It's the use of those kinds of, uh, of absolutes, evil, adulterous generation, wicked generation, that would not endear Jesus to his hearers. He did not read how to win friends and influence people. He spoke the truth. Matthew 17:70 calls him a faithful and perverse generation. And in Matthew 23:36 again uses the phrase this generation pointing out the failures and the flaws of this generation. So he compares this generation to a common childhood activity. Now, many commentaries commentators make an error here, I believe, because they claim that this analogy really refers to John and Jesus. Uh you have somebody playing the flute, they they Jesus is playing the flute and they're not dancing, and then they interpret, we, we mourned to you, and that would be John singing the dirge, John the Baptist, and they did not lament. But that perverts the illustration. We have to pay attention to what Jesus says. He says, what shall I liken this generation? Then you have the third person pronoun it. It refers to this generation. This generation is like children sitting in the marketplace, so you have one group of children, and they're calling something, saying something to their companions. And what's happening here is their companions are not responding to what they're doing. So you have these two groups of children who are playing make-believe, and they're playing dress-up. And you have one group that says, okay, let's play dress-up, let's play wedding, and you're going to be the groom, and you're going to be the bride, and you're going to be the groomsmen and the bridesmaids, and we're going to play uh, play wedding, and so when we play the wedding march, y'all fall in line and play and and put on a a wedding play, and there's no response. They don't go along with what the crowd wants them to do. So these kids then say, "Okay, you don't want to play wedding. Let's play funeral." Anybody play funeral when you were a kid? I played cowboys and Indians, but 
Okay, so they say, well, let's play funeral. And then when we play the dirge, this person's going to be the preacher. These are going to be the mourners. These are going to be the family members. And when we play the, 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 the funeral dirge, then respond to that. And they wouldn't respond to that. The point that Jesus is making is that the people are like these children who are saying, we played the, we played the, 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 the wedding music and you didn't respond. We played the, the, the funeral dirge and you didn't respond. They wanted John the Baptist in Jesus to dance to their tune. And John and Jesus weren't dancing to their tune because their tune was a physical, literal, political kingdom that would overthrow Rome. And that wasn't why John the Baptist was there to announce that kind of a kingdom, and that wasn't what Jesus was there for. So, so what, what the, this is a social commentary and a condemnation on this generation that this generation had a false view of the kingdom. They had their own preconceived notion of what Jesus would be like, what the Savior would be like, what the Messiah would be like, what the kingdom would be like, and they're coming along and say, that's not what God has in mind. And as a result of the fact that they did not do this, there's going to be judgment. And now Jesus brings this point home when we get into verse 18 and 19. And he talks about how they had diff- different responses in verse verse, uh, verse nine, uh, 18. He says, For John came neither eating nor drinking, and you said he has a demon. See, he didn't, he didn't act the way you thought he should. He didn't respond it. So you said, oh, you dismissed him. You said he's demon-possessed. He's a false teacher. You rejected him. And then he says about himself, the Son of Man, the term Son of Man comes out of Daniel chapter 7. It's a messianic title. So again, Jesus is clearly claiming to be the Messiah. And in Daniel chapter 7, you have this scene in heaven that talks about the Ancient of Days, who's God the Father sitting on his throne, and that in heaven the Son of Man which emphasizes the humanity also of this individual, comes before the Ancient of Days, and the Ancient of Days uh, then gives the Son of Man the kingdom. So that at that point, that is when the Son of Man comes to the earth to establish the kingdom, and that is yet future because Israel rejected it the first time. So the Son of Man came eating and drinking. It's glorious. The, the kingdom is, is here. They, they were rejoicing, and he came eating and drinking, and they say, look, he's a glutton and a wine-bibber. He's a glutton and a drunkard. Now, just as a side point, what this shows is it, because Jesus, they call Jesus a glutton, that was a distortion of something he actually did was he, he ate the party food. He came and they had a they had a good time, but he wasn't a glutton. He just ate and enjoyed the food that was there, but he didn't gluttonize. And then they called him a, a drunkard. Now, same thing. He drank wine. He turned water into wine at the wedding of Cana. They were distorting what he did when they said you're a glutton. They they weren't saying that they they weren't commenting on the fact that he never ate because that would destroy everything he's saying here. He's not fasting like John's people. He came and he ate. He didn't gluttonize. They're exaggerating to condemn him, so that also means that he also drank alcoholic beverages. I just want to make that point, because there's a lot of folks who still think that the Bible condemns drinking alcoholic beverages. It does not. It condemns the abuse of alcoholic beverages, but it doesn't uh, condemn drinking alcoholic beverages. In fact, one of my favorite stories in the uh, that I like to tell is that when uh, Jesus came, because I know some of you are wine lovers, when Jesus came, he he just um, accommodated himself to the plebeian tastes of the masses and turned the water into wine. But when God wanted a drink, he wanted a beer, nice cold beer. The Old Testament, you have a strong drink offering. And the Hebrew word for strong drink means barley beer. See, they didn't. we think of strong drink as a distilled beverage like vodka or scotch or bourbon or something like that. But in the Old Testament, they didn't have distilled beverages. That wasn't, technology wasn't developed until after uh, the New Testament into the modern, or, you know, 7th, 8th century, something like that. And so in the Old Testament, when God wanted a drink, he wanted a beer. He did not want wine. So you wine lovers... If you want to be really godly, you've got to have a beer. Just kidding. Okay, 
So, Jesus came, and he enjoyed food, he enjoyed wine, and he enjoyed the companion of people that were socially unacceptable to the Pharisees. He ate with the tax collectors and the sinners. And then Jesus concludes this, and he says, but wisdom, i.e. God, God is often personified as wisdom. Again, he's taking this out of, out of the Proverbs that wisdom is often the personification of God and divine thinking in the Proverbs. So he's saying, but wisdom, that is God's way of thinking, is justified, that it's vindicated by its production, by how it is applied. And here, that's what he means by this proverbial statement, wisdom is justified or vindicated by her children, by her results. And he's saying that if you look at the ministry of John the Baptist and you look at his ministry, then their ministry is vindicated by its results, but the ministry of the scribes and the Pharisees is not vindicated by their results. So again, this is a slap in the face. This is a condemnation of what they have been doing. And of course, this is going to just endear them even more, and this is, it intensifies the opposition. That's what's happening here is we're moving in the direction of chapter 12 when they completely reject uh, Jesus and ascribe all of his works to Satan. And as a result of this rejection that's building, Jesus states that there's going to be condemnation to those who have not accepted his message. Up to this point, what we've seen is a mounting rejection by the religious leaders of his, of his message and of his claim to be the Messiah. But there's also a mounting rejection by the people. Often you'll hear it stated differently. You say the religious leaders rejected him, the people mostly accepted him. I don't think so. Because here what we're seeing is a condemnation to all of those towns and villages around his hometown of Capernaum, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and they've rejected him. This is where Jesus did most of his miracles. 75, 80% of the miracles Jesus performed were in Galilee. And the people rejected him. They, they liked getting healed, they enjoyed the free food. You know, we want to have a utopian kingdom where the government is going to pay for everything, give us health care, where the government is going to take care of all the problems, where the government's going to give us free food and free lunches. We just don't want uh, Michelle Obama's dietary plan. But the government's going to give us everything, and we'll come for Jesus' handouts, and we'll come to get healed but we really don't want to repent. And that's the point here. There will be judgment for the lack of repenting. So Matthew eleven twenty, we read, then he began to rebuke the cities. And the word there that is used for rebuke is a word that emphasizes that, that he is refuting them and he is denouncing them. It's the Greek word on a design, which means to denounce, to give reproach, and it is a word that conveys a, a deep rejection and indignation about what they are doing. So he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Most of the people did not repent. That means they didn't change their mind about Jesus. They didn't reject the idolatry of the work system of the Pharisees and shift to the grace message of John the Baptist and Jesus. So he then, first of all, he... Uh, pronounces a woe. This concept of a woe and the terminology of woe comes out of the Old Testament. It is a word that indicates the announcement of doom, the announcement of judgment, and it is spelled O-U-A-I in the Greek. In the Hebrew, it's spelled O-Y, which is where we get the Hebrew and Yiddish word oi. It's a woe. It's an announcement of judgment, indication of something uh, horrible that is going to happen. And he announces this judgment on Chorazin, which was located about two miles northwest of Capernaum, and also on Bethsaida, which was the home of Peter and Andrew and James and John, although now they're living in Capernaum. And uh, it was just a few miles uh, further along the coast on the north side of, of the Sea of Galilee. So he announces his judgment on Chorazin and Bethsaida. And then he says, For if the mighty works which were done in you, that's the miracles he had done, had been done in Tyre and Sidon. Notice the juxtaposition. Tyre and Sidon were not Jewish cities. They were Phoenician cities. This is the center of the ancient Baal worship. 
This is the center of idolatry and the worst that the Gentiles uh, did. This is the worst forms of uh, paganism. And Jesus says out of his omniscience, knowing this is also a great passage for emphasizing that God knows all the knowable, but what woulda, coulda, shoulda happened, but didn't. He knows all the alternatives, all the um, possible things that could have happened. He says if these mighty works had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Sackcloth was a hairy, hairy garment that you would wear next to your skin that was really rough and was really uncomfortable as a sign, outward sign, that you were spiritually uh, repenting. And ashes were a sign when you were mourning. So if somebody died, you put on sackcloth and ashes. You were mourning over something. And so he's saying here, it, 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 there's a certain hyperbole here. He's saying, he's saying, you guys have had such a light given to you and so many miracles that that if if the Gentiles had seen this, they would have changed their mind and repented for the kingdom long ago. But you guys are are so hardened that you're gonna you, you just reject everything that's there. It's a, also a great indication when people think, well, Jesus could only talk to my aunt Bessie. She would finally accept the Lord, or if she would, he would only talk to my roommate. Miracles did not convince most of the Jews that Jesus was who he claimed to be. Because the issue isn't intellectual, the issue is spiritual. And you can perform all the miracles you can, and some people are going to respond and say, that's the Lord. Some people, it's just going to confirm them in their un- unbelief. And so it tells us that, that Jesus knows what would have, could have, should have happened. And as a result, he says, in the day of judgment, that's just a general term for the future when unbelievers are judged at the great white throne judgment. He says it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon. They didn't have the degree of revelation that Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum had. It shows that there are going to be degrees of punishment in the lake of fire. Those who had more, more will be expected from them, and their punishment will be greater. Those who had less revelation, it's not that they get off scot-free, because they still have enough revelation. People raise this question, well, what about the heathen? Well, God says there's enough revelation, nonverbal revelation in the heavens for them to know that a God exists, for them to be held accountable. And if they reject the nonverbal witness of the heavens, then... I will give them no more revelation. But if they accept the nonverbal revelation, then I will give them more revelation until ultimately they hear the gospel. He repeats the same formula in relation to Capernaum in verses 23 and 24. He says, And you, Capernaum, who were exalted to heaven. Why were they exalted to heaven? Not because they were so great, but because this was where Jesus lived. This was his home. They, they saw more of Jesus every day than anybody else. They had the highest degree of revelation of, of, of the hypostatic union of the God-man Jesus Christ than any other place. And that's why they were exalted to heaven. They had such privilege that Jesus lived, walked, ate in their midst every day, went to synagogue there. They knew him, and they they were, as such, they're exalted to heaven. But they will be brought down to Hades. This is where the unbeliever goes as a place of torments until he is judged and sent to the lake of fire at the great white throne judgment. And it's not talking about the city going there. It's talking about the people who lived in the city. It's the people who've rejected Jesus. You'll be brought down to Hades for if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom. Sodom is a picture also of the worst and greatest depravity, uh, the homosexual perversion, the sexual licentiousness, the absolute rebellion against God that took place in Sodom and Gomorrah. And so Jesus is saying they didn't have near the light that you've had, Capernaum, so... Uh, if they had had the light that you've had, they would still be here to this day. But he says, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Again, indicating degrees of punishment. Now, on the flip side, there's degrees of blessing in heaven for believers. There are rewards, different rewards for believers. So that those who walk by the Spirit and grow to spiritual maturity will have greater degrees of rewards than those who are just 
Sunday Christians, those who just trusted in Christ as Savior, but uh, as I've heard people say, I'm just going to be glad to get into heaven. I don't care whether I have a mansion or a mud hut as long as I'm in heaven. Trust me, that's not a biblical attitude. We should be pursuing the glory of God, and those that are the most committed, obedient disciples who grow to spiritual maturity will have great reward. Others will lose reward at the judgment seat of Christ, but not their salvation. And so the challenge that's embedded here for us as church-age believers is are we going to respond to the challenge of Jesus to be a fully committed disciple and grow to spiritual maturity to bring glory to God, or are we just going to be uh, a halfway Christian? Are we just going to be a, a, a Christian who just compromises with the world? We're just glad we're saved, but don't worry me about being sanctified or growing to spiritual maturity, and that is the challenge before us. Are we going to barely get into heaven, or are we going to get there with great reward and the praise of our Lord saying, well done, thou great, uh, well done, uh, faithful servant. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, I thank you for this time we've had today to reflect upon the response to Jesus. And we always take that home in terms of our own personal response. Even if we are believers in Jesus Christ and know for sure that we are going to heaven, and that we have an eternal destiny with him. Nevertheless, the issue for us is, are we going to walk by the Spirit? Are we going to grow to spiritual maturity? Are we going to pursue the plan that you have for us that you might be glorified? Oh, Father, I know there may be some here, some listening, that have never trusted in Christ. They're not sure if they're going to heaven. They're not certain. And the only way we can be sure and certain of our eternal destiny is to put our trust in Christ to believe in him. Scripture makes it very clear. The Gospel of John uses the verb believe over 95 times. And the issue is to simply believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins and by faith, in faith alone in Christ alone, we have eternal life. Now, Father, we pray that you would make the things clear that we study today as we reflect upon them in the coming days. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Let's stand together for our closing hymn, number 494, Like a River Glorious, number 494. Uh, Please stand, and then I'm going to ask Bryce Birch if he would please come up to dismiss us in closing prayer. Let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the, the great privilege as members of your royal family to come to this morning to worship you, Father, through the partaking of the Lord's table where we remember our Lord and Savior, as well as through the study of your word, Father, for your scripture is all sufficient. It gives us everything that we need for life and godliness. And as we close our service now, we pray that you will challenge us to become disciples, Father, and to become ambassadors to our Lord and Savior, Father, as we uh, grow in grace and knowledge of him as we and we pray these things in Jesus Christ's name amen